Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. It was a dark night in the naked city, which was probably ideal given all the nakedness. But I wasn't concerned with the lack of clothing, street lighting, and this grim metropolis. I needed answers about the resonant power of the detective story. So I went to meet my man on 42nd Street. What do you got for me? I got some Raymond Chandler, primo stuff, the big sleep, the long goodbye. I'm thinking uh, something old. Setting or publication date? Because I've got some Brother Cadfield, some Gordianis. I'm trying to understand the roots of the thing, why we love it, why we can't get enough of it. Okay, I have some homes around here somewhere. How about Pose the Murders in the Rue Morgue? We're talking 1841 here? A killer ape. Real primo stuff. Yeah, but that doesn't explain why we love it. Uh, well, why didn't you just say something? I think I've got the perfect thing for you right here. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hi, I'm Christian Sager. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our little uh, foray into uh, radio detective drama there. Uh, because in this episode, we are, of course, going to discuss the power of detective fiction. There's a little science in here. There's some culture, some cultural resonance. Uh, 
we think you will enjoy this journey, this ride, uh, not unlike the journey, not unlike the ride that a detective takes us on in a work of fiction. Yeah, the research really panned out on this one. I like uh, that there were so many different paths that researchers have gone down looking at how detective stories affect our culture and our human psychology and how we come to them as well. Yeah, and it's one of those genres that I feel like everybody, just I can pretty much say everybody, has at least dipped a toe in this. If if, if it's a you know a straight up detective novel that you've read or some show that you've watched on television, everyone is familiar with the trope and probably has enjoyed it at some point in their life. Yeah. So th- let's like just dabble into this for a little bit. So what's your big experience with detective fiction? Oh, I mean, like my, my earliest experiences were watching Jeremy Brett. As uh, Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. And, uh, like, my, my family would sit down and watch that. The ones that. that were on PBS? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We would watch, when we were living in Canada when I was a kid, uh, that would come on, and we would watch those, and my dad would uh, would, would tape them. Uh, so we'd had tapes with, like, you know, three different uh, cases per VHS. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, that was, like, my, my earliest entry into this world of detectives, for sure. Yeah, Holmes is definitely like the gateway drug for detective stories. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was, uh, gosh, like maybe between five and seven, my grandfather gave me this leather bound copy of, of Holmes stories that he got from, he had like a subscription to Reader's Digest. Oh, cool. And I still have that. That's the like, those, those are the Holmes stories I read whenever I turn back to that stuff. This just big tome of, of, uh, detective stories. Was this the one that had the, the kind of, if not the original typeset, then something that was orchestrated to yeah. look like it. Yeah, yeah. and the paper was like a, like a, a kind of old, tattered uh, ridge to the side of mm-hmm. it and everything, so it felt like you were reading like a 19th century book. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think yeah. I think we had the same volume uh, kicking around the house. And, of course, the great thing about detective fiction is that you, you keep coming back to it, right, because there are just limitless variations on it. Like uh, like even in, in the past few years, I've really, I really enjoyed uh, – a book from R. Scott Baker called Disciple of the Dog, which involved a, uh, a, a, um, a detective by the name of Disciple Manning, who has uh, perfect uh, just photographic memory, uh, but also, of course, is plagued with different personal problems. And he's uh-huh. like going up against an end-of-the-world cult. That sounds like the perfect example for one of the research studies we're going to touch on later. But mm-hmm. yeah, I... It, you know, the, looking back on it, I realized that I was more influenced, I think, by detective fiction in television and film than oh, yeah. I was by literature. I think Holmes was obviously my big starting point, and then like kind of detective uh, type genre stuff within comics, especially Batman and the whole like detective comics oh, yeah. idea of Batman being like you know the ultimate detective. But um, for me, it was definitely. Uh, the Thomas Harris, Hannibal Lecter type stuff, specifically with Will Graham as the detective trying to solve these oh, crimes. Yeah. Red Dragon. Yeah. Red Dragon, yeah. Uh, I love the movie Red Dragon. I love uh, Manhunter. Uh, um, and, and the new TV show as well has been something that I've been really into. And then just recently I've gone back and started rewatching that 90s TV show Millennium with uh, Lance Henriksen. Oh, yes. This is from the, the same guy who did uh, X-Files, right? Yeah, Chris Carter. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's basically the same premise as as uh, the Will Graham character. You know, Lance Henriksen plays this guy, Frank Black, who uh, when he he's a profiler. When he comes across a scene of a crime, he can, like, see glimpses through the killer's eyes and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so very similar to, especially the, um, the the TV version of Will Graham that we get with Hannibal. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. In fact, I'd say that that the new TV show probably pulls a little bit from Millennium, but okay. it's a. Whereas Millennium, I think, pulls a lot from uh, Seven, from mm-hmm. the, the the movie Seven. 
And, uh, and that movie is a perfect example. That's another one that I, I loved when I was, gosh, I think it came out like my freshman year in college. But, um, that is, that's a movie that really expresses that certain kind of detective drama that's just nihilistic and this view of the world. And the, the detectives themselves aren't particularly geniuses. I mean, we see Morgan Freeman go to the library one time and read a bunch of things about, <laughs> about religion. But other than that, you know, they're not like, they're not like Sherlock Holmes solving this stuff on the fly. Right. You know, of course, another great example of uh, detective uh, fiction in film is uh, is probably Blade Runner. Oh, yeah. Because that's one that I feel, especially on a visual level, like really resonates with everyone. And it drew totally. from, uh, from you know, sort of classic motifs uh, as well as uh, a new kind of cyberpunk vibe. Yeah, yeah. Blade Runner, ha- like more than I think a lot of things that are called noir nowadays, mm-hmm. incorporates the genre of noir into science fiction. Now, obviously, we could keep going just talking about, like, the various detective stories that you and I have read and the, the, the film variations, um, and as well as just the, all the stuff that's out there in, in the popular culture. Because it seems like every other TV show is some sort of police procedural or some sort of detective uh, uh, story that's going on. You could just name them one after another. But at heart, like, what is the what, what are the basics of the detective story? Yeah, there's something inherently comforting about the detective story, whether it's on TV or you're reading just like a pulpy paperback novel. But essentially what we're talking about here is crime fiction Mm -hmm. that's centered around a single investigation, which is almost always a murder, right? Right. Every every investigator or police officer is a homicide (laughs) uh, detective in these. Because that's the most serious, right? That's the the most potent, life-shattering, existential thing you could possibly look at. Exactly. They're not, like, usually going after an arsonist, although that's pretty serious as well. Because you're breaking the law. You're also just, uh, like, the law in a legal sense, but also in a moral sense. You've committed a crime unto God. Yeah, and there's there's an aspect to murder as well that plays into the aesthetics of the detective drama that we'll get into later. But in particular, you know, there's this idea that they are uh, a, a professional that's usually outside of the institutions of law somehow. You know, mm-hmm. like Sherlock Holmes, for instance, was a private investigator. He, he didn't he wasn't a part of the police force. He didn't work for Scotland Yard. And and in a lot of the examples that we were just talking about, all those all those various characters, Will Graham, Frank Black, uh, uh, Decker from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. They're all operating on their own outside of the system, even though they're somewhat connected to it. Yeah, yeah. Like the, so many of our detectives, they're at least, if, if they are still on the force and still part of an official system, then they're, they're, they're maybe a little bit dirty or at least they're damaged by what they're having to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Which, okay. One last example here, okay. which I think we should get into, uh, True Detective, which was huge last year when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was massively influenced by it. It's one of the best things that I've ever seen. Oh yeah, I was in, just completely in television it. fiction. Yeah. yeah, and uh and obviously, you know, without giving anything away, that story is very much about guys who are part of the police force but are just torn to shreds by, you know, the mm-hmm. things that they see and the the drama of this murder that they're trying to solve, or it's a series of murders. That's right, and new season uh, kicking off. I think this weekend. So yeah, cross your fingers. I I really hope that it's good. <laughs> I I do too. Yeah, we've we've had some. Uh, the first trailer that came out was a little uh, felt a little off, uh, and then when we learned that there wasn't going to be an occult um, theme in this one, that was also maybe a little disappointing to 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 some of us. But yeah, uh, I think it's it, in in a lot of ways it's going to be like. Um, the the whatever uh, the follow up to Mad Max Fury Road is right like the the 
criticism, the praise has been so high mm-hmm. for that and, and was so high for season one of True Detective that no matter what happens, people are going to be critical of it and, and find a reason for, to kind of shoot it down, you know. But I, I'm hoping to have, you know, like we're talking about here, that just like the fun experience of a detective ride, but also something that will satiate me sort of intellectually. Yeah. And, you know, he said there wasn't going to be anything occult in this uh, particular season, but he didn't say anything about aliens. So I'm holding out <laughs> hope that uh, alien invasion in California is going to be the uh, the subplot here. That, that sounds, kicks off about halfway. Sounds through. like a perfect use of yeah. Colin Farrell and Rachel McAdams. <laughs> um, but indeed, the, the detective story, Oftentimes centers around murder. You could uh, you could even make a case that uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, detective stories out there, uh, with its roots in uh, in the Bible and, and pre-biblical sources, is that of Cain and Abel, right? Right. Yeah. And we were talking about this earlier, and my reaction was, "Really? Who's the detective?" <laughs> and and to give your answer. I, th- I think it's intriguing. Yeah. The the the, uh, the detective here is God. Right. Detective God on the scene. And granted, he doesn't even have a very hard case because there's one suspect, period. <laughs> and there are what, you know, there, there, there are only a handful of people in the world in this yeah. uh, particular scenario. So God comes on the scene and says, hey, Cain, who killed Abel? Uh, and then he nails him for the crime. Right, yeah. It's not, it's a, it's a one and done who done it. Yeah. And judges him, <laughs> dishes out punishment, like everything. As we'll discuss, like, there's a lot in the Cain and Abel, uh, story that, uh, that is that is kind of the distilled detective story. Yeah, and plays out over the centuries as mm-hmm. detective stories go on. But uh so I think like the one that really kicked things off though for like the, the current genre that we think of would be Edgar Allan Poe's Murders of the Rue Morgue. Or sorry, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which we referenced at the intro. Yeah, that was uh, 1841 and uh and that one that one is often cited as yeah being one of the, the really early key detective stories that that uh that, that really um, influences everything to come thereafter. And there's this surge in the mid to late 19th century with detective stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Poe really kicks it off, but that's when you get, you know, Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and, um, and, and, and lots of others. Also early uh, 20th century as well with Agatha Christie, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, what else? Oh, I mean, yeah, the list goes on and on. Chandler. And Chandler, yeah. And uh, Dashiell Hammett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the 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 Philip Marlowe books, uh, mm-hmm. which I read one of those and, and really loved it. And I keep meaning to pick up more because yeah, I've read a lot of Chandler's short stories, but I've never read the Marlowe stuff. Okay, yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, yeah, and you, you you do see kind of. Um, I mean, certainly detective fiction is almost has a viral consistency because it it spreads out. It starts as this kind of you know the classic golden age stuff, which is which is often all about like a very intellectual individual using their intellect to solve this crime. Yeah. Uh, and then it, uh, you know, it spreads into different countries and in different cultures and then into different subgenres, et cetera. Uh, of course, the, 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 uh, the, the hard boiled detective fiction becomes really big in the United States, mm-hmm. which is, uh, and it kind of takes off as its own thing. And that's very different from what we're thinking of as this sort of traditional 19th century detective drama where hard boiled detectives are, you know, they've always got that self narration kind of like, you know, the, the gritty, it was mm-hmm. a dark and stormy night and, uh, everybody's corrupt. The all organizations are corrupt and there's this cycle of violence that the detective finds himself 
trapped within. They're almost like an anti-hero, right? Yeah, and it's it's less a matter of like one intellect against the problem. It's it's like the, the detectives in the hard uh, boiled fiction. They they tend to be as much uh, gut and heart and and lust, I guess, too, as they yeah. tangle with various femme fatales, right? Yeah, exactly. Femme fatales spin out of that. Uh, we've also got. You know, coming up on, I don't know, I wonder when the police procedural officially started. Do you think the 70s? Uh, well, I mean, you, probably earlier than that, right? Because you have like Dragnet and stuff. Yeah, I guess, right? Dragnet was what, late 60s? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, yeah, but police procedurals are everywhere now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like every time, I don't have cable, but anytime I'm like at a hotel or something and I flip through the channels, it's like 90% of TV is... Uh, shows with acronyms that I don't understand that are about various <laughs> detectives solving crimes. Yeah, and those are, I guess, are more uh, almost a return to the uh, the intellectual uh, detective in a sense. Because mm-hmm. here is the, uh, it, you know, you'll have individuals, of course, individual characters in the shows, but it seems to be more about here is a system, and here is a science, and the system and the science works. Yeah, and it works in a ways, of course, on TV that it doesn't actually in real life. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I had a big wake-up call with that when I served uh, as foreman on a jury duty, and they mm-hmm. had a forensic expert come and, and present to the jury, as they often do in cases. And it was nothing like yeah. <laughs> like CSI or any of those things. And even you know the, the expert themselves said there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, certainty with the science that they were performing. But that, that's a whole other episode, which I think it would be fun to talk oh, about yeah, forensic totally. science. Yeah, forensic science is, is fascinating. But yeah, I mean, we're surrounded by police procedurals. I think serial killer mysteries, like we've been, you know, we were talking about earlier, those are kind of my jam, the millennial type mm-hmm. stuff or uh, Hannibal Lecter. Like there's a, there's a popularity of that right now, uh, probably since the nineties, I would say mm-hmm. um, seven maybe kicked that off. Although, you know, you could go back further that Thomas Harris stuff started in the eighties. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, there are a number of, uh, of books that come to mind. Another one is, um, falling angel by William Hortzberg. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, William Hortzberg wrote the screenplay to legend. Okay. And then falling angel was made into the, a fairly lackluster in my opinion, film, um, angel heart with Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro. I have heard about angel heart, but I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the book, the books look pretty fun though, cause it's uh-huh. very much, uh, this, uh, this hard boiled detective story, but with, uh, satanic elements. Thrown oh, okay. Yeah. Sounds right up my alley. All right. I'll check it out. So forgive us. We're going to continue to get a little off topic talking about various, uh, examples of the, the detective, uh, genre here. But, uh, to return to, um, the, the mid 1800s, uh, particularly to the 1860s, uh, because that's when you really see the boom uh, happen, like full force. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are a number of interesting um, factors to take into account about the 1860s. Um, first of all, industrialization and the growth of literacy. You have more people than ever that are able to read. You have new machinery that's pumping out more books than ever. They're sold in stalls at your, uh, you know, your local metro station. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have a growing population of readers who uh, tend to go for more sensational content, more entertaining content, rather than, you know, upper crust stuff. This is, so we're talking books for the middle class. Um, yeah, and I think that there's a, there's a connection there to we're going to talk about the 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 influence of religion on the detective story and there's mm-hmm. a connection there certainly between uh the the emergence of literacy in the lower classes and the availability of books to pretty much anybody 
and that the connection of sort of roles of religion shifting away from the church into detective stories. Indeed. Um, you know, and granted at the time as well, you actually had real detectives out there. You know, there were, yeah. um, it was about this time that, um, the Metropolitan Police in London created its detective branch. Um, it was, uh, 1842. But, uh, in the 1860s, there was one particular, um, case in which you had, uh, uh, Jack Witcher of the detective branch, uh, making headlines investigating a sensational child murder. That's great. Great yeah. name. I mean, you couldn't make that up. <laughs> that Jack I know. That, Witcher. Jack Witcher does. It, yeah, you could. It, it sounds made up, but this is the dude's name. Every time Jack Witcher gets his man. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he I don't know real, if that was true. <laughs> if he did, but yeah, I'm not sure how the case actually turned out. Now I'm curious <laughs> to know. But but in a way, it's. I mean, the, the key here was that it ended up in the headlines, and so people yeah. were were fascinated by the story of this real life detective, and then yeah. you have all the, the crime fiction popping mm-hmm. up as well, and then. As you mentioned on the religion angle, um, there's a strong case to be made, and it's made uh, rather elegantly, I think, by uh, crime writer uh, Jason Webster in a 2015 uh, Ian Magazine article titled Unholy Mystery. And essentially he argues that the, that the modern detective serves as a sort of secular shaman. Yeah. Um, he or she is the priest the intermediary between God and man, between truth and man, uh, that can no longer exist entirely within the religious world because our worldview continues to break free from the shackles of religious thinking. I really like this idea. It's something that it, I had been thinking about independently, not uh, particularly about detectives, but about storytelling in general, mm-hmm. that, that fiction, modern-day fiction especially, sort of serves the same role that a shaman or a priest used to serve in a, a small kind of microcosm community like we used to think of. And uh, this, this this definitely plays out in his, uh, his thesis, I guess, for this piece, right? He talks about how detectives like shamans are the problem solvers for their community. There's somebody who can restore order when there's chaos, uh, they give us answers. This is a quote directly from his piece. They give us answers to the most pressing and urgent questions, not only who done it, but how and why and what the means are. And, uh, and all of it's done through the journey, right? Which mm-hmm. we, which we brought up earlier. It's, uh, it's all about the journey. That's the, that's the fun experience of it. I would, <laughs> this is going to be a weird connection, but I'd liken it to watching a cooking show, actually. Like, yeah. like there's pleasure in watching people bake a cake on TV, they're going through all the steps, putting the ingredients together, and the thing comes out, right? And Mm -hmm. the detective story is very similar in that the detective's going through this journey, collecting this evidence, seeking out hints and clues, and then getting the bad guy. Yeah, I mean, like the best detective fiction uh, often involves, like all the pieces are out there for us to see. We can't put it together. In a way, we're looking at that table of ingredients and saying, I can't imagine what this is possibly going to turn into. And then the detective, the cook, comes in, turns into a cake. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) it it was there all along. I was essentially looking at a cake. Exactly. And those are the best kind, right? Or Mm -hmm. at least that's how I experience it. Like the, the best ones are the ones where you you don't figure it out on your own. It's not like a Scooby-Doo episode. Scooby-Doo, the, the hallmark of detective fiction <laughs> for our generation, where, you know, pretty much uh, from the first five minutes into a Scooby-Doo episode, you're like, ah, okay, I, I, it's the, you know, amusement park owner wearing a mask pretending to be the real estate agent oh, or something I'm like that. I'm glad you brought up Scooby-Doo, though, because really, before I watched Sherlock Holmes, yeah. I, was, I was watching Scooby-Doo. I was watching these little mystery stories yeah. unravel. Yeah. yeah, it's funny, like... I think at the time I never really thought of them as detective mm-hmm. stories, but they certainly are, right? They're yeah. playing around with that. And, but that now, 
the stuff that I enjoy is true detective, right? Like remember when the first season was playing and social media was going insane trying to figure out who was responsible, what was going on, where where the story was going, you know, mm-hmm. and and everyone was wrong basically. Yeah. Uh and that was satisfying in some way, especially, you know, the, the there was a nice bow put on it at the end. A lot of people really wanted that Scooby-Doo moment where the mask was ripped off, but uh, it wasn't really provided. Tired of boring lunches? Picture this. You're at Chipotle ordering the same old burrito bowl. But wait, there's more excitement in store than just guac. Introducing Drop, the ultimate rewards app. Just link your card, dine at your favorite restaurants, and you'll earn points to get free gift cards from tons of brands. It's like getting paid to eat. Hungry for savings? Download the Drop app now and use code DROP44 to kickstart your rewards journey with $5 in points. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Father's Day is coming, a day we celebrate the guy who's always there for us to crack a dad joke. Well, you know what's not a dad joke? Getting $50 off the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker with the purchase of his favorite cocktail capsule pack. $50 off. No dad joke. See, this is a dad joke. I lost my glasses today, and guess who I bumped into? Everyone. But the Bartesian Cocktail Maker? It's no joke. Each cocktail capsule contains real fruit juices and all-natural bitters, so Dad can make over 60 premium cocktails he loves. Sidecars, old fashions, gimlets, all with the push of a button. So, for the dad who loves a cocktail with friends and a good joke from time to time, get the Bartesian Premium Cocktail Maker. 
$50 off now until Father's Day. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get 50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Yeah, but let's talk a little bit more about this shaman thing here. So uh, the industrialization part is definitely connected to this, I think. So you've got literacy growing. People are more than ever able to read. And the reason I should clarify and like kind of connect the dots here. So uh, the church really used to be the ones who were sort of in control of literacy, right? Mm-hmm. They, the cl- church, the clergy, the people who worked there, they were the ones who read. They were the ones who could explain to you what was within a book, which was subsequently explaining the world around you, right? Uh, in connection with the religion at hand. Whereas the detective novel becomes available, literacy is for everybody, you've got books everywhere. Uh, I'm assuming these are like novellas, like pamphlet books too, right? Like Murders mm-hmm. of the Rue Morgue isn't that long. Yeah, they're published, they're coming out in publications, yeah. But it allows you, the reader, to sort of explore the world around you vicariously through this detective who's, you know, leading you about. And throughout these stories, the detectives are very, priestly, right? There's a lot of connections to religious figures, whether they're shamans, monks, priests. Uh, it's interesting. They're almost always monk-like in their dedication to solving the crime, right? They're very singular in their focus, and there's no... Uh, they're not the hard-boiled detectives that we're used to, right? They're not tempted by outside influences. If a femme fatale uh, came across, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is old Sherlock Holmes, not like Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock right. Holmes. <laughs> uh, he would largely ignore them in favor of solving the crime, right? He wasn't interested in, in in anything beyond the dedication to solving the mystery. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of comparisons to be made between uh, you know, Holmes and, uh, and a member of the clergy, right? Because uh, he's um, he's likely celibate. Um, right. I remember, particularly, I remember a, a line from the, um, the the TV adaptation where uh, Holmes talks about how he's never loved anyone. You oh know? yeah. Again, it's you, know, you get this idea. You know, he's a creature that it exists outside of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's something compelling about that, obviously, yeah. to us. The like the the urge and necessities <laughs> of the human body are not something that he succumbs to, right? Whereas in like uh, I, I I recently reread uh, the Irene Adler story. What, what is that the Bohemian? Uh, yeah, oh, I can't remember the title. But yeah, uh, mm-hmm. a scandal in Bohemia, I think, is what it's called. And they they recently did that on the Benedict Cumberpatch uh, uh, BBC show version, and it was much more uh, titillating. You know, mm-hmm. like I believe that he first encounters Irene Adler, and she's totally naked in a room when he when he first meets her. You know, and there's obviously this play on w- will they, won't they kind of stuff going on. And he's certainly not meant to be celibate in that show, but. Uh, Going back to this, you know, resurgence of detective fiction in the 19th century, that was, that was off the table. It wasn't really part of the concerns. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's certainly a, a strong case to be made that um, that that Holmes was essentially kind of a Franciscan friar. Yeah. Who, um, uh, you know, his natural habitat is a you know mystical retreat where he isolates himself for weeks. You know, just you know, he's, he's on the couch, not moving, just in pure intellectual thought, almost as if in prayer. Uh, but yeah. of course he's in prayer to his, his intellect. Um, and of course, um, uh, Umberto Echo picked up on this, uh, when he, uh, uh, recast Sherlock Holmes as Brother William of Baskerville in, uh, The Name of the Rose. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's 
perfect. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's like, that's, he's very on the nose. Yeah. With that. Like that's, he's, he's essentially Sherlock Holmes to the point, uh, that the first few pages of, uh, of the, the novel like match up with a study in Scarlet. Like, really? Exactly. I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, wow. Now it makes me kind of want to go back and, and, uh, at least rewatch that movie. Was it did Sean Connery play that character? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Um, and then of course, you know, we mentioned G.K. Chesterton. I'm saying his name wrong, right? Chesterton? It's Chesterton. Chesterton, yeah. I mainly know him from the uh, the book, The Man Who Is Thursday. But uh, uh, his Father Brown series was about a priest, or maybe he was a former priest, I can't remember, who Mm -hmm. was also a detective. And this is a big, uh, there's a whole line of these. Like, like Mm -hmm. even in the States, like, was it Father Down, Father Downey, uh, Father Downey Mysteries, I think? Oh, I don't know those ones. It was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a Murder, She Wrote um, I was just about to say, Murder, She Wrote is sort of like a version of this as well. I, I don't particularly remember uh, Angela Lansbury having anything but dedication for her writing and solving these mysteries. It wasn't like she had a lot of outside interests. Right. But I think there was maybe even a crossover. I'd have to go back. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there was there was at least one U.S. show that had a uh, a, a priest uh, solving crimes. And, okay. of course, there were various examples of this in British television. Like, it's, I think, an ongoing trope. Over yeah. There. Um. Now we've talked about the church here, but uh, but I, I do want to return to the idea of the shaman itself and like mm-hmm. the older sense of the word, um, because there are a lot of fantastic comparisons to be made here. Uh, you know, you, you look to a shaman, and it's particularly in a in, in an, an older culture, right? Uh, as someone who looks inward to the mysteries of the soul and human consciousness, and they take us on a journey, uh, sometimes a terrifying, soul wrenching journey. Of discovery, uh, they help uh, they help an outsider explore questions by bringing you into a sacred space, by producing a tray of magical substances. Often, right. they alter your perception and experience of reality. And key here too, the shaman is is very much an individual with a foot in two worlds: both the real world that we live in every day, and this other world, the spirit world, this demon world, god world, whatever you want to make of it, right? Yeah, and that's key to the detective story as well, the the living within two worlds, right? Mm -hmm. That's why these guys, more often than not, are not part of uh, law, institutions of law, because they... In order to catch the criminal, in order to solve the mystery, they have to somewhat have that darkness in their heart, right? And, right. and be able to, to travel the road that the criminal travels as well and understand them. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and, you know, there's also a case to be made, particularly with Sherlock Holmes. Um, Sherlock Holmes sometimes takes a powerful drug. Yeah, to, uh, right. to help him answer the questions he seeks. Right, yeah. And in the case of, uh, did you ever read or see an adaptation of The Devil's Foot? No. It's probably my favorite uh, home story because it involves a powerful African um, substance uh, known as the devil's foot. Okay. When, uh, when, when it's basically a shamanistic uh, powder. Okay. Uh, but it's used in the in, to commit a crime uh, where like one or two people were murdered. I, I forget the body count. Uh, they just killed dead by it, and the rest are driven insane. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so Holmes ends up breathing in some of it just to experiment with the substance and has like a, a terrifying uh, vision. Yeah, so, that sounds right up my alley. I'm curious about that because, 
Right. Like, th- this is one of those things about homes that is often disputed and people go back and forth on. I, I remember when the, the new show, the, the BBC one that's popular right now started airing and there was, there were all the suggestions to him having a drug problem. There were people complaining about it. About him not having a drug problem? About, about him having oh, one okay. and saying like, oh, what is this? This isn't part of the Sherlock Holmes that I know. And it's right there in the original texts, you know? Yeah. I remember in the Jeremy Brett, um, versions it was it was very present but then i I believe i remember correctly brett made it uh a priority to sort of to to get holmes off the drugs so like there's a a scene where he buries his pipe and all uh because he didn't he didn't want young kids to watch sherlock holmes and be inspired to to partake whereas like i think in the new one he just wears like a lot of nicotine patches or something oh yeah he does yeah Yeah, that's right (laughs) which is which is another interesting way of uh of tackling the same the same issue but I love this idea of the the scientist as shaman, particularly when you look at it coming out of uh, the 1860s, right on the heels of the 1859 publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species, which had a profound impact, just leaving a kind of a cultural vacuum in its wake. Yeah, and there's something that I would like to touch on here as well from another article that I researched for for this uh, episode. Uh, it was an article called Detective Fiction and the Aesthetic of Crime, which is in a 2014 uh, issue of Raritan magazine. And uh, basically, it's a fairly simple premise, which was that detective stories came out of this connection to Darwinism, uh, and that time's obsession with medical knowledge mm-hmm. and especially vivisection, right? Uh-huh. And we get Jack the Ripper around mm-hmm. that same time, the Elephant Man, all these sort of like, you know, learned men of England examining the body and basically tearing it apart. Hmm. And there, so the, the author of this piece, J.S. Harpham, basically, uh, puts forward the idea that the aesthetic of murder, the aesthetic of taking a body apart and killing somebody, was prevalent within British society at the time. Uh, and, and as such, it influenced the detective fiction. Uh, it made it so that there was almost a celebra- celebration of murder as an art form. Huh. I mean, when I think about all of these different examples that we've just been talking about, right, and like all these detective fiction authors coming up with these incredibly morbid ways for uh, um, characters to find bodies, right? Right. Like uh, on Hannibal. Oh, Hannibal is... Man, alive. Like, I I remember watching, I think it was in the first season, and I was like, I can't believe they're getting away with this on network television. Mm -hmm. Not that I disliked it, but, like, I think there's a point where they find a human totem pole, and it's, like, 20 people all, like, stacked on top of one another. And Lance Hendrickson plays the man who built it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice connection to Millennium there. And, like, I'm reading a a book by, um, I believe you pronounce her name Lauren Bukes, or or Bukes, Mm -hmm. It's called Broken Monsters. And this isn't a spoiler for the book. It's like right in the first chapter. But the the premise is that they find a body of a boy that's cut in half and sewn to the body of a deer. And you think about this stuff in these grisly circumstances that we dive into with this fiction. And there is a celebration of murder of in this weird artistic way. Well, it's almost like the uh, I mean, one of the things that's coming out in this period of time and continues to to sort of, you know, be a a point of. uh, consideration for the modern reader, I think, is just like the, the basic biomechanical nature of the body. Yeah. And uh, and and it seems that, uh, yeah, when, when you have these villains and these pieces that are doing elaborate things to take it apart and rearrange it, it's all kind of a meditation on uh, on that, you know? You know what just occurred to me? Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Ah. Similar kind of thing there yeah. going on. 
the taking the body apart, putting it back together again, <laughs> and making it walk around. Huh. I, I will say this about Hannibal. I remember when I first started watching the TV show, and and it became clear that they were going to just go ahead and roll out a new, just unrealistically complex yeah. murder every week. I remember thinking, well, that's good. They've embraced it. They've decided we are going to live in a universe. We're just going to go ahead and live in a universe that's a little different than the than, uh-huh. than reality, and not try and make the world of Hannibal conform to it. It is, yeah, it is one of the things that I love about that show is that it's so over the top. I keep thinking to myself when I'm watching it, like, why would anybody stay in the the Baltimore area uh, with all the, like, every time you open the newspaper, it's like, oh, we found a uh, human totem pole of 20 people on the beach yesterday. Or, you know, <laughs> like, every week there's some totally bonkers serial killer running around. Yeah, you would have to have whole support groups just for people <laughs> who uh, have themselves or have loved ones that have wound up in some one of these scenarios. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's grisly, but like it, getting back to the, the, the meat of this, there's something about that that we like, right? We like getting into, no pun intended, the meat of the story, going along the journey with the detective and sort of learning how to understand the world from their journey and from the evidence that they gather. Yeah. I mean, to go back to Cain and Abel, you know, you need Detective God to step in and say what's what. But in an age when God has less sway over our worldview and our daily life, you need somebody else. Yeah. And it's all about the uh, drawing the line of morality, right? Yeah. That's what God was doing in the Cain and Abel story. That's what we're finding out here, you know. Uh, In a lot of these cases, like you were telling me about uh, some examples of Sherlock Holmes when... Uh, Holmes does not uh, bring the criminal in uh, and and d- lets them go. Yeah. Uh, basically because Holmes has decided where the, the demarcation for morality is and that, you know, this this or that criminal don't need to be locked away. Uh, and, and you get that as well. Obviously, you know, we've, we've touched on it already that there's a there's a part of the detective that has to be a criminal themselves, has to sympathize. And, um, you know, depending on the circumstances, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like, uh, oh, have you seen Luther? I haven't yet. Yeah, and, uh, that, that's uh, with uh, Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another priestly character. Mm-hmm. His last name's Luther. Oh, because we should probably hit on that before yeah. we break, that uh, you see so many, uh, not all, but so many detectives whose, na- whose last names uh, uh, generally have something priestly in them, something to do with the clergy, right? Yeah. And in this case, uh, Luther is in Martin Luther. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, this is right from the very first episode that there's a character that is uh, a murderer Mm -hmm. that he comes across and he can't exactly prove that she's a murderer. And over the course of the series, they're sort of friends. She's sort of a femme fatale character, but they're in their and an antagonist, but they're also friendly with one another and help one another out. And it's like he's decided that she's not the kind of murderer that he needs to be pursuing. <laughs> it's a fascinating line that these characters draw in the sand for us. There's a, a whole list of characters you could you could run through that have priestly names, uh, including um, Doctor Priestley from uh, John Rhodes' for, uh, forensics. Uh, he's a forensic scientist in the 1920s uh, fiction. There's. Um, John Creasy's uh, Commander George Gideon, as in the Bible. Yeah. Um, on TV today, in addition to uh, John Luther, we have, of course, Adrian Monk. Yeah, right. That mm-hmm. one's right on the head. What about, um, I, I feel like I remember reading uh, Alex Cross. Yes. That's a character, yeah. right? James Patterson's Alex Cross. Yeah. There's Simon Templer, uh, a.k.a. <laughs> the, the Saint. There's, um, on the TV show Castle, 
Uh-huh. Of course, I think we have with Frank. Is it Frank Castle the name of the character? I've never watched that show. It, it's basically Murder She Wrote, right? I think so I, okay. I haven't watched it either, but I know there's a character named Castle. Okay, and his name is just more of an idea that if you have a detective, they have to have something kind of cool in their name, right? Uh-huh. But yeah. there is a Kate Beckett on there. So okay, okay, I can sort of chalk that up to it. Um, there, I already mentioned R. Scott Baker's disciple Manning, so uh-huh. he conforms to the the, the trope. Um, Will Graham of Red Dragon, you could make a, an, a case that uh, there's Bill, Billy Graham, essentially William <laughs> Graham. Yeah, I never could thought you, about uh, that before. There you go, yeah. His, uh, right, his rise to power was right around the time that Thomas Harris was writing those yeah, novels. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, oh, I can't remember any of the names of the characters from that Lauren Bukes novels, but now I'm going to think about this when I'm, when I'm finishing up that book. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the detective fiction a little more. Uh, we're going to draw in uh, a scientific study, uh, some thoughts about uh, how the human mind works, and, uh, and where the, de- the detective fiction stands, uh, in, uh, particularly in 20th century um, culture. Ever tried to tackle a home improvement project without making 10 trips to Home Depot? What if I told you there's a way to earn cash back while you shop? Introducing Drop, the ultimate rewards app. With Drop, you can earn free gift cards by shopping in-store or online at Home Depot and tons of other stores. Download the Drop app today and use code DROP33 to get an instant $5 in points. That's Drop, your go-to for shopping rewards. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. 
Dad deserves something really nice for Father's Day. But let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. Picking something up on the way is for Father's Day. Well, let's make Father's Day something this year with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. It whips up over 60 premium cocktails on demand, each ready at the push of a button. And right now, you get $50 off the Bartesian Cocktail Maker when you buy one pack of Dad's favorite cocktail capsules. Dad will publicly love that you saved 50 on the countertop machine that crafts premium cocktails on demand. And he'll secretly love that you splurged on him for Father's Day with the gift of a Bartesian. Because the only thing that lets Dad know he's the world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Hey, we're back. Uh, we're talking about detective fiction. The fictional detective is a seeker of truth, a resolver of conflict, an assigner of blame, a, a shaman, a, a priest, uh, a an individual that stands with one foot in our world and one in another world, and they can help us, in theory, um, figure out the mysteries uh, that plague us. And so we, we teased before the break that we were going to touch on some some uh, scientific studies about detective fiction. And the first one is this uh, interesting uh, article from Psychology Today, written by a guy, it's uh, Christopher Badcock, I believe is his name, and it's called The Genius of Detective Fiction. And he has this theory that there's two modes of cognition that are involved in our favorite detectives, right? In, in mm-hmm. reading about our favorite detectives and that sort of make up these characters. Do you want to hit on that? Yeah, yeah. He, uh, you know, basically he's, he's looking at two different ways in which our mind work. Uh, one is, he calls mentalism. And this is kind of, uh, theory of mind, folk psychology. Uh, uh, and then there's mechanism, which is more theory of bodies and folk physics. And, uh, the, the, the two, uh, big examples of the, of this to look at, the, the ones that, uh, that Badcock draws out here are that you look at Sherlock Holmes, right? And there are obviously notable autistic tendencies in his mm-hmm. character. Uh, his lack of social interest, interest, his, uh, his, you know, the degree of concentration that he brings to, uh, any given case and his eye for detail, uh, where mis- a crime or a mystery is concerned. And we, we do see this more and more, I feel like, in these, uh, in these modern, uh, uh, Interpretations of Holmes, these modern explorations of it, because we're oh, coming yeah. at it with this uh, increased knowledge of, of of what autism is like. Yeah, I think that it, Holmes is one of those characters that is probably going to be revisited for centuries, mm-hmm. and it, it seems like every time we revisit the character, there's more and more of uh, the psychological understanding that we have through science brought mm-hmm. to the character. And there's, I think, there's that infamous line in the new TV show where he says something like, "I'm not a psychopath; I'm a highly functioning sociopath." Uh-huh. Uh, Something along those lines. Uh, and, and that touches on, you know, the, the second aspect here of Badcock's theory, which is that you've got the mechanistic part, the, which he sort of likens to being autistic. And then there's this mentalistic aspect, which he likens to being on the spectrum of the psychotic disorder. Uh, and it, he says that there's, you know, a play between the two of um, being on the autistic spectrum and being on the psychotic spectrum. And for detectives, they in, in particular detectives play this out for us, right? Uh, in the general population, there's this incredibly low rate of people who would have that combination of mental factors. 
but uh, we see them in things like his exa- these are Badcock's examples. Uh, John Nash, who just passed away last week. Oh I believe, yes, yeah, right? he did. Yeah, car wreck. Car wreck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Isaac Newton, and then his other example was Beethoven. Huh. That these are uh, examples of these sort of autistic slash psychotic uh, characters that that we fall for, and that the detective character plays this out for us. You know, our actual cognition doesn't have to go down this route. But and, the- you know, I could imagine, I can easily imagine uh, fiction coming out in the years to follow uh, where all three of those guys solve crimes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's a really good idea. Together, yes, they, they yes, travel through time. time. Machine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the the, the cool thing uh, about Badcock's paper uh, is that it, you know he really shows that there's um, there's the way the human mind works, and then these two different extremes. Like that's where we tend to position our detectives as as, as extreme right. modes of human cognition. Yeah, and if they fall too far to one side, they're not effective detectives, right? right. So, like, uh, take the Will Graham character, for example. Like, he's constantly being pushed further towards the edge of psychotic, and rather than being somewhat in the middle between psychotic and autistic. Uh, and that's when he, you know, he's at his worst. He's not able to, to catch the killer. Um, but on the other end of it, I'm trying to think, like, Holmes is probably the one that comes to mind as being the, the one that leans heavily towards the autistic side, right? Yeah, I feel like he was the uh, the best example of that. Um, and, and on the other end of the spectrum, um, Batcock brings out uh, Agatha Christie's Miss uh, Marple. Oh, yeah. Example. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I've never read uh, Miss Marple. Yeah, so I have not I either. speak to that. Huh. I'm trying to think of other examples here. Where would uh, Lebowski fall? <laughs> because he is, he is essentially yeah. a detective. Yeah, that's true. Lebowski is, uh, we're referring to the Coen Brothers movie, The Big mm-hmm. Lebowski. Uh, yeah, Lebowski would be definitely more towards the psychotic end, I think, right? Uh, he's, he doesn't have a particular focus or dedication to anything <laughs> whatsoever. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but he does have a disregard for social conventions. He does. Yeah, and and that's that's something you do see. Yeah, isn't that isn't that the the theory I've heard is that Lebowski is a, a like scene for scene adaptation of Chandler's The Big Sleep? Huh. I you know I'd never really thought about it. Supposedly, I think I've heard that rumor somewhere. I'm sure one of our listeners will de- debunk that idea, but I, I remember somebody telling me that one time. All right. Well, uh, moving along to a little more uh, science. Um, this uh, this next study uh, comes down to a basic question. Who doesn't love a good whodunit? Right. Well, in theory, nobody, right? Like, I would think, like, a, a great whodunit, like, that's that's what you want in your detective story. You don't want to call the ending, like, right from the beginning. Like, mm-hmm. that's always the worst, right? Especially if you if you don't see the ending coming and you're watching, say, a detective show with somebody who does. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's the wife that killed him. Right. This is like the original spoilers before yeah. the Internet was really kicking around. Yeah. <laughs> don't tell me who it is. I, you know, I haven't gotten to the last page yet. There's those people who do like to skip ahead, read the last page, and then read the rest of the book, though. Yeah. And I think this study touches upon that, right? Yeah, indeed. Uh, this is a 2006 Ohio State University study that they conducted in conjunction with uh, the Hanover uh, uh, School of Music and Drama in Germany. Um, and they looked at, uh, at uh, particularly they were curious to see how people with low self-esteem uh, reacted to uh, crime and detective stories that either confirmed their suspicions in the end or threw them for a curve. Yeah, and so this is essentially the methodology of the study, right? There were 84 German college students Mm -hmm. that were their subjects, and they all took these personality assessments, basically um, self-reporting on what their 
self-esteem levels were. Uh, and then they were each assigned to read a short one-page mystery, which was called Murder Because of Lust or Greed, <laughs> which is a very, very German title for, <laughs> for a detective story. Uh, I'm sure it sounds a lot uh, sexier in German itself. Everything does. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the without getting into whatever the story was about, essentially these students were given three different versions of the story. One in which the suspects are equally likely to have committed the crime. The second version hints that one of the suspects was more likely than the other to be the killer. And then the third one hinted that one suspect was more likely to be the murderer, but at the end, the killer turns out to be, dun-dun-dun, somebody that you're not even Uh. aware of. It's the Scooby-Doo twist, right? (laughs) Somebody pulls a mask off. And what they found was that of these uh, self-reporting students, people with low self-esteem rated the surprise ending as less enjoyable than the confirmation ending. So they didn't like Hmm. the surprise if they had low self-esteem. Whereas the people who reported that they had high self-esteem reacted the opposite way. They really liked the surprise and they didn't like knowing ahead of time who committed the crime. Huh. Yeah, this is a weird one to wrap my head around because, um, I, I mean, I guess the best I can imagine is like try and put myself in the, the you know, in, in the, the mindset of someone who's like, say they've had a really bad day at work. Right. And, uh, you know, just everything is, uh, everything's, uh, everything's, a disaster, just one after the other all day. And then you get home and you read your detective story. And maybe there's an argument to be made that that this individual reads the detective story and if, and if he's able to, to, to guess the outcome correctly, he's like, ah, well, I got one finally, thing right today. Yeah, exactly. Finally, finally, something went me. right for me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I can understand that. But, geez, I mean, no matter how bad my day gets, <laughs> I, and I'm not saying that this is indicative of me having a particularly high self-esteem or anything like that, mm-hmm. but I like the twist, you know. I'm not... Uh, advocating for an M. Night Shyamalan twist to every single ending of a story, but I like to be surprised. I like to not know where the story is going. And I think, like, as somebody who consumes a ton of fictional entertainment, you get to a point where you you start recognizing the narrative beats, and, you 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 know, a a lot of times you often know where it's going. Yeah. Um, So it's always uh, surprising. I mentioned True Detective earlier. It's always surprising when something leads to a direction that you weren't expecting. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the beats. Um, it reminds me of a, an example from Lucha Libre, okay. uh, where someone uh, someone brought up uh, it was a discussion about like big mask versus mask Lucha Libre mm-hmm. uh, matches in particular, and someone brought up was they said, well, you always know who's going to win, like because generally the the good guy wins. Really? The, yeah, the good guy wins and the bad guy loses his mask. Um, and uh, anyway, someone was saying, well, there's no surprise here because this right. the story always ends the same way, and then. Um, Someone countered by saying that it's that there's a mythic quality in that that when the story always confirm conforms to a a certain pattern and a certain mythic story, then there's comfort in that because yeah. the story every story is important in 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 the way that it conform conforms to a pre-existing uh, narrative. Yeah, and I can see that there's a pleasure to be had there as mm-hmm. well, right? Uh, in the in your example, like you get home from work at the end of a terrible day and maybe you don't need any more surprises. Maybe yeah. you just want to have something familiar be there for you. It's like a blanket. Yeah. 
but it's, like then, a, it's like a thunder shirt. <laughs> thunder shirt. <laughs> yeah. But, but then, I mean, again, to your point, it's like if I've had a bad day, I feel like I would want the story to just suck me away and take yeah. me into a place I can't predict. Right. So. The escapism aspect. Yeah. yeah. But uh, according to their study, now, I, I do have to say here that, you know, when I read this, I thought, well, the, the evidence here is a little loosey-goosey, and I'd like mm-hmm. to see some more research done here. I mean, in particular, they've got this very subjective group of students that they're looking at. They're all college students. They're all German. They're all of a particular age, right? And um, they're all also self-reporting on their self-esteem. So mm-hmm. I think it would, it would be interesting to see a study where there was like a more of a quantitative psychological assessment going on here, and then you compare that to their results of you know reading the story, but. Um, again, you know, this is a very uh, subjective w- world of research here. I agree. I agree. Now, another role for the detective uh, we thought we'd mention here um, is uh, that of a subcultural liaison. Uh, and this idea comes to us from uh, Theory and Practice of Classical Detective Fiction by Jerome Delamater and Ruth uh, Pregazzi of uh, Hofstra University. I would have to say neither of those last names particularly good detective names. <laughs> yeah. I think I would have to go back to, to Badcock, who we mentioned earlier. Yeah, that he would be an excellent detective. Yeah. He probably changed his name just for that piece. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not very religious sounding, <laughs> though. And uh, what do we mean by subcultural liaison, though? Well, um, you, you know, you think of any crime story, right? And it involves like sword paths, right? And mm-hmm. dark secrets, uh, and some sort of uh, convergence between the normal world and some sort of a subworld. So, you know, we already talked about the shaman having one foot in ours and one in, you know, the realm of the spirits. And the detective, of course, has one foot in ours and one in, uh, at least in the criminal element, right? At mm-hmm. least through, uh, investigations conducted there, if not some portion of his or her life, uh, existing there. So the, the detective often serves as this, uh, this vehicle through which we get to uh, explore a, a subculture that we would otherwise just not be privy to. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, especially for, uh, I think, a, a certain sect of people who love detective stories, mm-hmm. right? There's this mm, vicarious, like, toe-dipping into the world of the criminal, right? Yeah. Uh, it's the safe way to do so. And... Um, I mean, I'll admit it myself. Like, I don't particularly have like a dark criminal past, but I like watching uh, shows where I, I get like some sort of a hint to what criminal activity is like in America. You know, even mm-hmm. though it's fictional and it's obviously like way off base. I'm I'm thinking like the closest version of this is like The Wire, right? Yeah. So if you're watching David Simon's The Wire, and you're like, now I have an understanding for drug culture in Baltimore, and that's probably. The closest you're going to get to accuracy, and even that is, you know, I believe highly fictionalized. Yeah, but still, to the you know, to, to the average viewer, mm-hmm. they suddenly know a little more about the reality of that than they in, would have. In particular, that subculture yeah. of being African American in Baltimore and living in a neighborhood that's immersed within the drug scene. Right. Yeah. Now that's which not is the, not something that I, in particular, have access to. Right. Now, you know, of course, that's not to say that every detective story is going to really give you an authentic feel for the subculture. Like, you know, right. detective investigates a murder in a in a dungeon doesn't mean you're going to end up with a, a better understanding of what BDSM culture is all about. Right. You're probably yeah. going to have a very skewed uh, um, idea, a very sensational idea of what it consists of. That's probably part of the safety, though, too, right? Yeah. Is that, like, it? it's just far enough, it's arms reach away enough that it's not... 
you know, it's not entering into our own lives, but it gives us, it's back to the shaman again, it gives us a broader understanding of the world. Right. But then I guess when you get used to your, your shamanistic detective taking you into these worlds, you maybe get a little more comfortable each time. Mm-hmm. And so we end up with this growing trend of de- detective fiction allowing us safe journeys into these varying worlds. Often uh, times you'll also uh, end up uh, getting to take these journeys uh, with a little inside help from the, the author uh, themselves. Um, it's been pointed out that uh, since detective fiction, it, even in its early goings, was was more about fun and entertainment, right. uh, it meant that uh, writing detective fiction was uh, was more open to female writers. Yeah, right. And obviously, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, having such a, a, a surge of popularity was unusual. Right. Huh. So now I'm thinking about like these examples of detective fiction that we like that we we're, you know, we were talking about earlier at the top and how they're sort of giving us access to subcultures. I mean, so this, this Broken Monsters book that I'm reading right mm-hmm. now is very much about like, uh, post-industrial Detroit. It's set in the present day. It's very heavily linked to social media, uh, and the art world of Detroit in particular. And so it's giving you this access and view into this world of, you know, I, I, don't have any connection to to that particular scene at all. Uh, so I guess I'm I'm living it vicariously through the detective who's who's scurrying about the streets of Detroit trying to solve this guy who's sewing people's bodies to animals. Yeah, or even think of the first uh, season of True Detective. Uh, so much of that concerned some very mm-hmm. authentic feeling scenes of rural Louisiana. Like it was, it's far different from you know movie Louisiana, like Hollywood Louisiana that you got say on uh, True Blood, right? Yeah, or uh, or any given uh, bit of fiction that takes place in uh, in Louisiana or New Orleans. That was one of the things I loved about that show so much was that Louisiana was a character in that show and it really made me think about the southern gothic genre in a very different way than I ever have before Uh, and one of my favorite bits in all of True Detective and this isn't a a spoiler at all is we're set in the mid 90s these detectives are trying to figure out a murder Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they pull over at a roadside Vietnamese uh, fast food place in Louisiana and just have a quick snack. And there's no commentary on it whatsoever. <laughs> it's just there. And it's something you wouldn't expect, right? Yeah. You, you wouldn't think like, oh, rural Louisiana is going to just have these roadside Vietnamese places. But it, the the author's familiarity with that region obviously came through there. And it was a, n- a nice glimpse. Yeah. So with detective fiction, you, you often are kind of skirting sensationalistic displays. But you're also getting this uh, at least a little insight into other social classes, economic divisions, lifestyle choices, sexual orientations, mm-hmm. races, ethnicities. And when you get into international um, detective fiction, too, yeah, that often allows you to, you know, immerse yourself in a different time and place. Well, certainly when you speak of time, you know, any kind of historical detective stories, uh, such as, say, the Gordianus books that take place in ancient Rome, you get to explore these different times and places and characters, mm. but with the sort of the safe structure, the kind of enclosing shark cage of the of the genre. Yeah. You know, I mean, this explains, I think, partially why we as Americans love British Victorian era mm-hmm. detective stories, right? There's something about that era that we keep coming back to over and over and over again. And, and again, like the detective story gives us the shark cage to kind of immerse ourselves in there. You know? Yeah. I don't think anybody, uh, in the present day would, would be particularly thrilled with the, the everyday amenities of that world. But, you know, the, it, it's, 
it's attractive to look back to. Yeah, I mean, it instantly gives you that that kind of comfort level. Like if I were to say, hey, let's go see a movie about ancient Babylon. Mm-hmm. Let's go see a detective story, a detective movie set in ancient Babylon. Like instantly, I, I have a little more idea of what I'm expecting yeah. uh, with the sort of uh, cultural flavoring surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I really like this idea. I'm going to be looking out for this a lot more now. I'm thinking of like... <laughs> uh, um, what is this movie? <laughs> it's a Wes Craven movie, and I can't remember the title of it. You might know it. It's about an Amish community where there's these strange murders happening, and the mm. X Files revisited it as well. But there's a you know this detective's trying to solve murders in an Amish community, and there's there's a sort of supernatural bent to it as well. But huh. it's very much one of those like here's how the world of the Amish work. Huh. Here, you know, like an introduction to it through the detective story. You know the tropes, you know the beats of the detective story, but the the setting is is uh, something that we're unfamiliar with. Huh. So given the the role of the detective in fiction and given the uh, the power of the subgenre and the and the and the, the ultimately the the sub- subversive nature of it, uh it's understandable uh to see that it has uh, it has been banned. There has been uh, there have been governmental crackdowns on detective fiction yeah. uh in recent history. Yeah, especially when you consider what we were talking about earlier that most detectives are uh Somewhere on the side, they're outsiders of mm-hmm. institu- institutional authority, right? And so it makes sense that governments and institutional authority would, would frown upon that, right? And, and want there to be more respect for their institutions, for their uh, laws, etc. Yeah, Stalin banned uh, the detective story. Uh, wow. And uh, the restrictions remained in effect until after his death in 1953. Hmm. Uh, Italy followed a, a similar pattern, Um and, uh, and this is uh, interesting to the German approach. Um, so one of the most uh, influential authors uh, back in the, like, the 1920s was a guy named, by the name of uh, uh, Eric uh, Kastner. Okay. And uh, when the Nazis came to power, they burned all of his books, but they didn't ban the detective genre outright. Instead, they, des- they decided to sort of fold it into their propaganda, and they only okay. allowed detective stories um, – that, uh, that depicted honest and highly competent policemen that were upholding the, the rule of law. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm just imagining, like, okay, here's our Hollywood pitch, right? We walk into the meeting, there's this big, long table of Hollywood executives, and we go, okay, it's a detective story, but the detective is an SS officer. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, that's, that's great. He's going to be conflicted, and he's going to... He's going to be like a good German trapped in an awful system. Uh-huh. And you say, no, no, he's nope. just really good. No, he's a flat-out Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound very interesting at the no. end of the day. But, you know, a lot of these stories that are designed to support, you know, uh, authoritarian regimes <laughs> are not either. Well, it kind of brings us back to the uh, the forensic uh, slant in the sort of modern police procedurals, right? Right, Like yeah. in their purest form, again, it's about a system and a science that works. And you don't yeah. question it. Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of those, I mean, I, I have to admit, like, I'm not a huge fan of pol- police procedurals. I can understand that there's a, a quality of, uh, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, that, that quality of familiarity, right? Mm-hmm. Where you, you throw on an episode of Law and & Order and you're like, I know how this is going to go, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the beats are the same every episode. And, and for the most part, it you know where it's heading. It's a... 
Law and Order and Scooby Doo have a lot in, in common <laughs> that way. But, but, however, you know, there is something to be said here, like the characters in Law and Order, by and large. I'm, again, I'm not a huge fan of the show, but from my understanding, like, they're lawyers and police officers, right? And they're working within the system to solve the crimes that they solve. And then, you know, in shows such as, like, CSI or, geez, what is it? NCIS? Is yes. that the military yeah, one? That's the one. Okay. Uh, they're using science to solve these crimes within these institutions. But we pretty much know where they're going, you know, at the end of at the end of the day. There aren't a lot of spins on it. I think there was like one CSI where like Quentin Tarantino did a did, oh, it directed yeah. it and wrote it, I think. And it was like one of the guys got buried alive or something. Huh. That, that was the twist. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, you know, I just want to close with a quick quote from literary critic Edmund Wilson. Um, and this is from a, a piece that he wrote in The New Yorker in 1944, where he was asking the same question. Why do we love detective fiction? Uh, and uh, he says the following. Yet the detective story has kept its hold, and even in the two decades between the great wars become more popular than ever before. And there is, I believe, a deep reason for this. The world during those years was ridden by an all-pervasive feeling of guilt and by a fear of impending disaster, which it seemed hopeless to try to avert because it never seemed conclusively possible to pin down the responsibility. Who had committed the original crime and who was going to commit the next one? That murder, which always in the novels occurs at an unexpected moment when the investigation is well underway, which may happen, as in one of the Nero Wolf stories, right in the great detective's office. Everybody is suspected in turn, and the streets are full of lurking agents whose allegiances we cannot know. Nobody seems guiltless, nobody seems safe, and then suddenly the murderer is spotted and relief... He is not, after all, a person like you or me. He is a villain, known to the trade as George Gruesome, and he has been caught by an infallible power. The supercilious and omniscient detective who knows exactly how to fix the guilt. All right. Hey, uh, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you will find all the podcast episodes, the blog posts, the videos, links out to social media accounts, you name it. And if you have any thoughts about the detective genre, uh, let us know about your favorite detective stories, how you think they fit into these ideas we've talked about today, shamans, subcultural liaisons, bands, all of this stuff. Let us know what you think by writing to us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com or by reaching out to us on social media. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top ten for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.
Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is.